And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, I want to start this week's podcast with an apology. Uh, I am behind. I am behind on uh, getting questions answered. I am uh, behind on uh, working on the the books that uh, we hope to release before the end of the year. Uh, one of those is a book that Rich Buck and I are working on, and Chris Patterson is working on his own book. But uh, um, we are uh, we are all a part of this project together. Uh, I also had three weeks off, and. Uh, while I had time to do some research on that trip, I, I did not take the time to stay on top of all the projects. And yes, I know I am behind on the 401k updates, and I apologize for that. I leave this weekend to go to Charlotte, where I will speak uh, in the morning to the AAII and in the afternoon to the, uh, to the local Choose FI um, fire group, uh, financial independence, retire early. So it's going to be a younger audience. Uh, if either one of those are of interest to you, please take a check at uh, on the homepage of paulmerriman.com where you can see information on where those will be held. And then two weeks after that, uh, Chris Pedersen and I will be jointly presenting uh, in uh, uh, in Orlando at the a national uh, uh, annual conference, uh, AAII. That will be recorded. I'm not sure what happens to that recording, but uh, we are happy that it is being recorded, and uh, in some fashion, I'm sure we'll have a chance to distribute that. In the meantime, I am loaded with questions, and um, I've gotten a lot of feedback on this recent information I sent out uh, about looking at the returns of different asset classes uh, over periods from 28 to 72 and 74, and then 1975 through 1999, and then 2000 through 2018. And there were a bunch of lessons in there. But I still do, in fact, get uh, more questions about what do you think? What's the reality? Uh, yes, we know that value has underperformed growth recently, but is this something for the long term? Uh, uh, and and uh, what should that premium be if it's going to continue to be? And of course, the answer is, I, I don't know in either case um, what all of that is going to be. I do know that my job is to try my best to get to the reality. But how can you find the reality about the unknown? And I found, uh, I get a, a daily or weekly, uh, often I get a, a piece from Seth, I think it's Godden, uh, who is a marketing expert, and uh, uh, I share a lot of his kind of philosophical beliefs, but he sent this last week uh, a piece entitled Getting to the Truth. And I was particularly attracted to this because that's what I'm trying to do. I am trying to get to the truth. And he says in this relatively short piece, your anecdote isn't true. In other words, your story isn't true. I know what happened. I know that your experience, your feelings, your outcomes are real, and they're yours. Statistics suffer when compared to anecdotes because your mileage may vary. Your interaction with the randomness of the world will never match up to what the statisticians tell us to expect. Because averages and correlations are never what we actually experience. We experience a tiny slice of it. But at the same time that the larger truth can't be experienced, your anecdote can never represent the larger truth because it's yours. 
What happened to you will never happen to anyone else, not in quite the same way. By relying on well-told stories, we ignore the real truth, the universal truth of how the world actually is. Yes, our mileage varies, but please let me know what the reality of the world is. I really like that piece, and and it, 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 it made me think back about all the stories and anecdotes that I used to try to teach. And all of the things I know are but a slice of the total. And we talk about that, that, that circle of information within which everything that could be known about investing is enclosed. And there's that piece, of, that piece about uh, of pie, if you will, about what you know you know. And then there's the piece about what you know you don't know. And then the one that's what you know you know, but you're wrong. And there's the one about what you know you know, but you don't do anything about it. And I think I forgot to mention there's the one that represents what you don't know you don't know. And through all of this, I am trying to pick out a few pieces of information of the millions of data points that are out there and of the myriad of studies that are out there about is big better than small, or value better than growth, or U.S. better than international? I mean, that's, that's just a, a slice of what we're trying to deal with, because besides all that are all the feelings you come to the investment process with. And I can't know those. So here I sit in front of this mic trying to, 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 to tell you something that could be life-changing, because the future will look like I would like it to be, but of course, it has no obligation. In fact, sometimes it feels like the future is just set up to try to make a fool of each one of us because so many things happen that we just don't expect. So here's just a few more notes, a few more comments, a few more slices about this whole discussion about value versus growth. A tough question that many of you have asked, and it's really a tough one, is how much information will it take for you to change your mind and come to the conclusion that growth is better than value for the long term? And who knows, as I've said before, maybe bonds will be better than stocks in the long term. It doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't mean there can't be a set of circumstances under which that might be true, because we know that has been true from 2000 through 2018. But when I look back at the returns of these asset classes, uh, in fact, uh, one of our regular listeners sent me one that uh, uh, about uh, uh, the perspective, a new perspective on growth versus value from uh, Alger, A-L-G-E-R. So it talks about over the last 10 years uh, what's been happening and why, and, 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 and why it should have happened and why it will probably maybe continue to happen. But remember, everybody who decides to take a position, I mean, think about right now in our political struggle that we're having. Very smart people with very strong feelings are coming to very different conclusions about the same set of facts, except maybe not the same set of facts. And even when we talk about value versus growth, we might not be talking about the same set of facts. Now, in this particular study, they talk about the 10 years ending 2018. And over that 10-year period, the S&P 500 uh, compounded at 13.1, the Russell 1000 value, those are big companies, 
value companies as Russell sees them. Uh, the compound rate of return was 11.2, and the Russell growth 15.3. So that tells us about 10 years' worth of data. And yet, as we talked about in the previous podcasts, the expected difference between growth and value and blend and, um, and, and whatnot is much greater than the difference we see here. Now, we do expect value over time to do better than growth. But here's an interesting part of this story. The previous 10 years, the S&P 500 lost 1.4% a year. The, the growth, the large growth, the Russell 1000 growth lost 4.3% a year. Well, how could the growth do worse than the S&P 500? Because the S&P 500 had a portion of the portfolio in large cap value. And large cap value for that 10-year period was a positive 1.4% a year. So there was about almost a 6% difference between the Russell 1000 growth and the Russell 1000 value, but in that particular 10 years, value did better by about 5% or 6%. Well, how different is that from the period the last 10 years where the Russell 1000 value compounded at 11.2 and the Russell growth at 15.3? Sounds remarkably similar. So which 10 years, if 10 years is important, is the important one? Well, it turns out, really, neither. Neither. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so what we then have to struggle with is, you know, what period is important? And if we talk about the future, what period is important there? If we say that the period that's important is 50 years or 90 years, and that that is the number we're looking at, not the last 10 or 20, does that mean then we have to wait a, a, another 50 to 90 years to make the decision? Well, I suspect not. When I say I suspect not, I don't think anybody will wait that long. After all, I'm 70, almost 76 within days. And so what, what am I talking about 50 years? I'm worried about the next 10. So this whole struggle, oh, and there's more to this topic, and I'm going to hold it because I'm going to use it in addressing uh, one of the questions that we got. But before I address that one, let me talk about a question that has come up regarding the monthly income portfolio uh, that we have uh, under the Vanguard recommendations at Um I Just very briefly, the difference between the monthly income portfolio and the bond portfolio or portion of the portfolio that you get in the uh, portfolios at, at Vanguard, the moderate, the conservative, the aggressive. Actually, there are no bonds in the aggressive, but the bonds that we recommend in the, in the conservative and moderate portfolios are really there to stabilize the portfolio in times of, of market stress so that something may be good, hopefully good is happening when the market is melting down. And this approach has worked well in the past. Uh, we can go back to 2008 and see that uh, while the equities were melting down, certainly uh, uh, in that year, uh, the, the fixed income, the bond portion of our portfolios that are short-term, intermediate-term, government, high-grade, a very, very high-grade portfolio because it's almost all pure government. And uh, But that's different than the people who might say, look, I, I, I want bonds in my portfolio, but I'm looking for income. And so it may be as long as 20 years ago 
that I created a strategy that was a combination of bond funds at Vanguard that paid uh, better returns than the government's, but we weren't so worried about stability as we were about creating that income. Now, at that time, 15 or 20 years ago, bonds were paying a lot more than they are now. So let me first just tell you about those four bonds. One is a short-term corporate. Second is an intermediate-term corporate. Third is a Ginny May. And the fourth is high yield. And this is the Vanguard high yield, not just any high yield. And here's what I know, that over the last 15 years, according to the Vanguard results that they report on their site, that the 15-year compound rate of return, by the way, that's a combination of interest and if any capital gains that happened, or, or, or the value of the portfolio going up due to falling interest rates. Whatever the reason each year, what was it worth at the beginning, plus the interest and dividends, plus the value at the end, and the compound rate of return over that 15-year period was 4.5%. So in theory, if you were taking out 3 or 4% to live on, you would have been okay. Now, uh, today, we all know interest rates are lower. And so if I look at what the average of these four funds right now would be, it's about 3.1%. And that is what we call the SEC yield. And uh, I, I'm often asked, what is this SEC yield? The important thing is, I think, that it has nothing to do with past returns. Because even if the strategy did make 4.5% a year for 15 years, that doesn't give you a clue as to what it's going to give in the future. But the SEC yield, in many ways, is the best information we have about the future. It is based on the most recent 30-day period as covered by the fund's filings with the SEC. They have to report uh, on a regular basis. And that figure is going to reflect all the dividends and interest earned during the period after the deduction of the fund's expenses. Now, those expenses are the operating expenses. It is not going to include a load along the way. So you could buy a load fund that you have paid an extra expense that's going to eat away at your returns forever, but it's not reflected in that SEC yield. And it is probably the best way to compare bond funds because it gives you the best, the best rate of interest you're likely to get in the future. And so it's a good way to compare uh, bond funds. And as we know, there are other things we've got to know, the quality of the bonds, the maturity. There are a lot of other things that are important. But when you're looking at a similar class, uh, it is important to compare uh, that uh, SEC yield. Now, it is possible within a particular class, like short-term corporate, that other mutual funds might have lower quality corporate that could lead to a higher return. So it isn't, again, it isn't just that SEC yield, but at least gives you a clue as to what's happening now and is likely to happen in the coming months. Now, when I think about this, uh, uh, this listener's question uh, ab ab about the, uh, the, the use of these uh, of these funds uh, to, to live on in retirement. What, what he wants to know is, what exactly would I be withdrawing every month? He, he says, my funds are with Vanguard. And again, he wants to ask about 
the mechanism to withdraw money out of those funds. Well, the one simple mechanism you could use is simply to have the interest and dividends not reinvested but simply paid to you. Now, you wouldn't get very much right now. You you obviously would have gotten a lot more in the past from looking at their 15-year history. But looking right now, you would get, on an annual basis, a payout that would represent about 3% a year. What that means is, if you need four to live on, then you, you are likely going to have to dip into the principal to make up for that portion that's not meeting your needs with that 3%. Now, you could get the 4% if you wanted, and you could put all the money in the high-yield a Vanguard fund that's paying four point, almost 47 and you could take out 4%, but, but remember, there is the possibility of some percentage, a historically a very, very small percentage at Vanguard, but a small percentage of bonds that, in fact, will default. And that is definitely going to impact the value of your portfolio. That's one of the reasons you get this higher return to make up for that. And if, in fact, you need more than the 3% uh, it's paying out, you can just liquidate some portion of uh, of one of these uh, of one of these funds. You wouldn't have to take it out the same of each one. You just take it out of one of them. Uh, having said that, um, what is what I think is very interesting is that the impact over a lifetime, a retirement lifetime, let's call it of maybe having one, 10 or 20, maybe even 30% of the portfolio in equities because historically uh, that has added as much as an extra 1% or more uh, to that compound rate of return and could be the difference between having to dip into principal or not. And of course, the minute you add equities, you increase on a short-term basis the risk of uh, of having to dip into principal. So you can do this. You can do this monthly. You could just reinvest all the interest and dividends back into the funds if you wish to, and take one check a year. My wife and I, what we do is we take out the money that we're going to use the first week of the year. We have a formula, 5% out of the pool that we live on. That then goes into a short-term bond fund, corporate bond fund, that is right now paying about 2.3%. And we've been doing this for years. And the bottom line is we have made a lot more doing that than if we had left the money in a money market account. Now, that may not be true at this very moment because I think there are some some bank accounts that are paying better than 2.3. But that's the strategy that, that we have used. And again, the monthly income strategy, and you can see the recommended funds, the short-term corporate, the intermediate-term corporate, the Ginny May, and the high-yield, those funds are listed under Vanguard, first at paulmerriman.com, go to Mutual Funds, and then that will take you to a choice between Vanguard and Fidelity and Schwab and T. Rowe Price, but go to Vanguard, and then scroll down to the bottom, and you will see the uh, the monthly income portfolio. Uh, topic number four here today comes... Uh, from a fellow who says, uh, in reading your book, Financial Fitness Forever, in the Vanguard model portfolio suggested allocations, you recommend getting the 500 index fund, which is a large domestic blend fund. I was wondering, now that Vanguard offers a large growth index, if you thought there was 
that was more appropriate than the 500 index for diversification purposes, uh, referring here to the long-term buy-and-hold strategy. Well, this is really kind of that value versus growth question again, because here's what has happened. We've put together a portfolio that we call the ultimate buy-and-hold portfolio. And it is a asset class-weighted portfolio rather than a cap-weighted portfolio. Cap-weighted means that your portfolio is going to represent the market in terms of the size of the companies that are in your portfolio. So the very large companies in the S&P 500 or in the total market index are going to drive most of the return of that portfolio. But a a growth index would mean that along with the value index we have, that there would be an attempt to go peer growth plus peer value. Now, for what it's worth, you don't get peer growth and you don't get peer value, but it's the best that we can get at. Why would we want to have the 500 index instead of the growth index? Well, that's a that's a sneaky way to slightly overweight the portfolio to value because the S&P 500 is definitely a balance of value and growth, whereas the large cap value is a value-oriented portfolio. So in theory, in theory, you've got one fund that is about half growth and half value and a second fund that is theoretically all value. Now, in reality, that balance, when you put the two together, come out to be about 60% value uh, by our definition and about 40% growth. But why this, why this overweighting to value? Why not have pure growth, pure value, and just take 50-50? Well, <clears throat> here's why. And again, as I talked earlier about about uh, the, the, how the long term is more important than the short term, and I still believe in the long term from what I know um, about the returns I've seen even in the last 10, 20 years. And in this particular discussion, I'm going to take you even to a little deeper dive because I talked earlier about the, uh, uh, the, the, the Russell 1000 growth and value and index. The index is the combination of growth and value. But I'm going to take you back to 1979 instead of the last 20 years. And the reason I want to do that is because I have the data for the Russell 1000 growth, value, and the blend, large cap, from 79 to 18. And here's what I know. I know that the index itself, the combination of growth and value, compounded at 11.5. The Russell 1000 value at 11.7. And the 1000 growth at 11.1. Now, that's not a huge difference, but let's not forget that I've made a big deal in the past about how an extra half of 1% can be life-changing. Now, I also looked at, for that same period, the Russell 2000 growth value and blend. And when we go back to 1979, the Russell 2000, this is small cap, growth, Compounded at 9.4, the value at 12.4, and the index, which is a blend of growth and value, 11.1. A decided value, a 3% additional. Okay? That's a big deal. Now, there's a difference, obviously, between the, the, the premium for large companies and small companies, but that doesn't change the fact that value over that period from 79 to 18, both small and large, 
made more money. Now you want to go make it a little better? You build the small cap growth or value or blend with a different set of parameters. Maybe you go smaller. Maybe you you go more deeply discounted value. So when we look at the DFA large cap uh, growth, instead of the Russell at 11.1 from 79 to 18, the DFA is 12.2. Instead of the large value being 11.7, the DFA is 13.3. So, I mean, the bottom line is that it's not because because DFA is smarter. It's because they have simply used a different approach to identifying, and this is this, this again, this is this academic driven organization to represent these asset classes. Now, let's talk for a second about small cap. Let me just give you the small cap from Russell's. Russell's small cap uh, growth was 9.4. DFA's small cap growth was 12.6. Big difference. The Russell 2000 value, small cap value, was 12.4. At DFA, it was 15.3. The combination, the index the blend at, at, at Russell was 11.1. It was 13.6. Combination of, of both value and, and growth at, at DFA. So it isn't just is value better than growth. It's also how do you identify value? How do you identify growth? And there are some big differences. So that's a part of the decision-making process as well. And the thing that I am truly excited about, because I have, my wife and I, have our buy-and-hold positions at DFA. The challenge is, at DFA, you have to have typically a larger account. But we are trying our best, and that's what the we, this is, this is really, it's the work of Chris Pedersen. Chris has done this great job, and time will tell how good his work has been. But he's done a great job of putting together a portfolio of ETFs with 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 a way not looking to how much money they made, but how big were the average size companies, how deeply discounted were the companies. And of course, if you are if you're trying to replicate what DFA has done, you wouldn't do very well with your small cap value because their small cap value hasn't been doing very well lately because it's been a bad time for small cap value. But it's what it is, and it's what we believe for the long term, and and and, and you'll see reports. Chris hasn't come up with the nine-month return of our best-in-class, but I'm certainly going to be comparing it when I get it to what I got in a similar portfolio at DFA. So our work isn't just about, oh, we believe in small cap value and we believe in in the S&P of 500. No, it is what small cap value. And we're doing our best to get you the best. Here's a question uh, from uh, Chris. He says, uh, I recently read your article on the ultimate buy and hold strategy and liked it quite a bit. However, I was wondering if you have a current list of which stocks, ETFs, or other types of uh, funds I would invest in for each of the portfolios you described. I'm very new to investing and I'm looking for a long-term buy and hold strategy. Ah, a good long-term buy and hold strategy for a taxable brokerage account. You seem very knowledgeable, and I would greatly appreciate any help you are willing to provide. Uh, Chris, thank you. Uh, I am knowledgeable about a lot of things, but in some ways, the most important thing to be knowledgeable about uh, is you. 
And of course, I can't be knowledgeable about you or I then become your investment advisor. So what I'm going to respond, the way I'm going to respond is that I'm going to assume you want to be uh, an all equities portfolio. And you have said that you're looking to be tax uh, efficient, uh, which means that um, uh, either you'd be looking to tax-managed mutual funds or ETFs. Now, as far as making uh, recommendations, uh, Chris Pedersen, I mentioned him a few minutes ago, uh, Chris has developed this best-in-class set of ETFs. Now, what he set out to do was to replicate that ultimate buy-and-hold strategy. And you remember, 10% in U.S. large blend, 10% in large value, small blend, small value, REITs, international, the same things, and then an emerging market fund uh, or two. Uh, In some cases, you'll notice we even recommend more than one fund. And in fact, the fund recommendations can be a little different for a taxable account than a a tax-deferred account. But each one of those is considered to be the best that we know for what we're trying to do in terms of value and blend and, and, uh, and the size, large and small, etc., And here's what is so unbelievably exciting to me, is you can go to M1 with $100. M1 is a brokerage firm. You can go there for $100 and open an account and follow that strategy at M1. If you're going to think about doing that, then I want you to to go to the uh, at the ETF link on our site, and you can hear us talking about M1 and and these strategies that you can do on your own. Now, full disclosure: we, the, our foundation. If you open up an account at M1 with a thousand dollars or more, we get a one-time affiliate fee. So is there a conflict of interest there? You know, I'd I'd like to believe there isn't. Am I happy that the foundation will receive something if you do that? Sure. But it happens one time, and it's only for people who put in over a thousand. For people who want to put in a hundred, we don't get anything but the Uh, the sense of happiness that you're going to have a chance to see this work with very little money at risk. But here's more. As you probably know, recently at Vanguard, at TD Ameritrade, at Schwab, zero commissions anymore on these ETFs or individual stocks. I've said before that when I was a stockbroker back in the mid-60s, if I sold 100 shares of IBM, I got 100, I didn't, the firm got $175. I got something like 40% of that. Somebody came in and bought 1,000 shares, guess what? 10 times $175, and I got 40% of it. And today, you can get that for nothing. I have said it so many times. Investing has never been easier or more efficient for individuals with index funds and target date funds and and, and, and ETFs and the ability to to get perfectly diversified with $100. And oh, by the way, the only thing that I'm waiting for that will cause me to just bellow at the top of my lungs how happy I will be I'll be the most happy guy in town for at least a day when I find out that Vanguard and Schwab and and others will not only allow a commission-free transaction, but will allow partial shares with an ETF because that's what we get at M1. 
is the ability to trade and rebalance and do those things with partial shares. And it's a pain in the neck for people to figure out when they buy a port, put together a portfolio at Vanguard and have to only buy in, in a full share at a time, it's not as simple. But it, they'll get there. I mean, if M1 can do it, they can do it as well. But there's where you'll find the list of, of ETFs or, or stocks. Or, by the way, if you want to do it with individual mutual funds, uh, there's still some advantages to mutual funds, by the way. I think it's important to know. It's just that the, the tax impact can be greater with the mutual funds and, unless you're dealing with tax-managed funds, and we actually have made some recommendations at Vanguard in that way. But I think you're going to get a, 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 a better tax efficiency with the ETFs. Next question comes from Fred. And I love the way he opens this paragraph or this, this question here. He says, I just enjoyed a replay of your seminar, and now it's a video, uh, Target Date Funds, America's Number One Retirement Investment. Replay means he watched, <laughs> he watched it twice. I like that. Now I hope that you'll all get your kids to watch it. It's about 45, 50 minutes long. And in there, I talk about why I think that target date funds are so powerful. Even if you don't add the extra fund that we recommend to, 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 to turbocharge turbo your returns, I still think a target date fund is going to do better for people in the long run than they're likely to do on their own trying to pick and choose amongst the funds within their their offerings in their 401k. And one of the points I make in that presentation is that I try to compare a pension fund to the target date fund. And the reason I do that is because the pension fund the 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 person the individual never gets involved in any decision making except to go to work for that company and stay there long enough to qualify for the pension fund and then what happens is automatically instead of part of his all of his pay going to him part of the pay silently quietly invisibly goes into a pension on their behalf and it's invested in a way that is appropriate for the needs to what that pension needs to fund later in life when that person retires. It's a it a pension, a monthly check that's guaranteed uh, from having talked to retired people is one of the greatest luxuries, financial luxuries in retirement. I think the other one is having way more money than you need. I mean, that's kind of like having a pension fund because you know, at least you believe you're not at risk of not being able to meet your financial needs. But Fred made an interesting point, and I hope I got it, Fred. He says, there is one point that you may perhaps address in the future relating investing uh, as an administrator for a pension fund uh, that has a fiduciary standard and responsibility. And there is a fiduciary responsibility to manage those pension funds in the best interest of the people who are going to receive that money. But whether you would say that the people who run the, the Vanguard target date funds are fiduciaries I will tell you, they fully disclose what they're doing, and that's all they do. Uh, I would have assumed they would qualify as a fiduciary, but I can understand that the the fact that they aren't specifically uh, responsible for the needs of that one person that might invest in it, maybe they don't qualify as a fiduciary. But what they've done is they've put those portfolios together to be 
the best they know in terms of what's in the interest of the people in the target date fund, just as they would for what's in the interest of the people in the pension fund. And it's true. He says, I appreciate your investment policy and approach. Investing other people's money is different from investing one's own money, as I'm sure you appreciate. That is true. That, that is why when you are an investment advisor, and I just talked to an investment advisor recently who said, I know a bear market is coming, and I just shudder at what I'm going to have to go through to try to keep these people on point and, and, and keep committed to what their goal is in the long run because people panic. It's their life savings they see evaporating in front of them. That, that's how it feels when they see the value going down by 5 and 10 and 15 and 20%. And so when I recommend to you that if you expect to retire in 2065, and uh, that I think you should put your money into a target date fund that is going to is going to be appropriate for you in terms of risk and return between now and then. I don't know you. I am not a fiduciary. As a matter of fact, if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't feel secure in your risk tolerance. Go get professional advice from somebody to make sure that you are likely to stay the course when the, the going gets so much tougher as it does in a bear market. So I think professional advisors are, are a big deal. By the way, you can get a professional advisor at Vanguard, but you've got to have $50,000 in an account there to get it. And you can get you can get guidance from hourly people. I uh, I, I just talked to a uh, an hourly. He's a CPA. He's also got what they call a PFS, Personal Financial Specialist designation. It's the equivalent of a CFP, Certified Financial Planner. And guess what? He has that too. And he has offices in. Vancouver, Washington, and he has offices in, uh, or an office in San Diego. And, uh, and, and, and he's a tax expert on top of being a financial planner. And here's the, an interesting story about this guy. Uh, he is, for legitimate reasons, licensed to help people who are in investments that require the person helping them uh, to have uh, a, 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 a brokerage license, in essence. And so he can do, he could do a commission item, but he doesn't. Uh, he only has that further designation because... Um, because he wants to serve his clients who, as a part of their portfolios, are sitting on some variable annuities from way back when. But he is considered, because he has that dual registration, on the, on the hit list for people who say, don't ever do business with somebody who is duly licensed because they might sneak up and sell you something with a commission in it. And by the way, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that if you don't know deeply, intimately, who you're dealing with. Because I saw it happen. I saw somebody who's duly licensed stand in front of a room full of very smart people in the Seattle area who were retiring from a very big company and after they made a presentation to the people who were retiring from this company who had loads of dough, this person offered a free consultation. Come to my office. I'll look at your things personally. Duly licensed. 
Owen, I'm a fiduciary. Said that too. I'm a fiduciary. Then into the office they go. Door is closed. Next thing, they are moving them from the world of fiduciaries to the world of a huge commission. And I went to work for somebody that I know this happened to. And I told them what to say, when to say it. And they were way outside of the ability to get their money back because it was within the 30-day period. But what they had done was so egregious that the person I was helping, I will not ever know whether he succeeded or not. Because they forced him to sign a non-disclosure a non-disclosure agreement that they would never tell anybody this dastardly thing that they had done and that they had actually given the client the money back because they'd have a line of people waiting outside their door if they found that out. So in most cases, in most cases, you are going to find that you probably will be safest if you're not dealing with somebody who is duly registered. But at the same time, if you don't know what a person does recommend, if they're not recommending low-cost index funds, if they're not recommending uh, commission-free to you, to you, oh, and, and what this fellow recommended that you do is have the advisor sign a letter stating that they will never sell you anything with a commission without your written permission, without your written permission. Okay, I'm worn out. You're probably worn out. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, spending your, your valuable time with me. I want to thank all those people that are passing on our information to friends. I want to thank all those people who have been kind enough to go to our website and donate to our foundation. Uh, and I want to thank all of those of you who are sharing your questions with me. And I want to apologize to every one of you I have not had the chance to respond to, including updating the 401k plan some of you are so impatiently waiting for us to do. Uh, we'll get there. And uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to serve you. Good luck. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.